this morning in Romans chapter 12, as well as in Psalm 37, just the first verses of, of that psalm. So I want to encourage you to turn to Romans 12, 16 through 21, and then Psalm 37, 1 through 11. And we'll read the Romans passage first. If you'd stand, let's recognize that this is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. Romans 12, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then if you'll turn to Psalm 37, starting with verse 1. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord. Do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself, because it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the many promises contained in these two short passages. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder that we don't have to strive like the world, rage like the nations, but instead, Father, the way of success for the Christian is the way of humility, is the way of peace. It's the way of patience and being still and waiting upon you. Lord, thank you that we have so much to look forward to, and thank you ultimately that there is peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, both Romans 12 and Psalm 37 speak of giving way to anger and wrath, allowing the Lord to have vengeance upon the wicked and humbly resting in God's timing. And the result of all of that in both passages is peace. Psalm 37, 11 adds an interesting statement well known to many because Jesus quotes it in his Beatitudes, the meek shall inherit the land, it says, or the earth. And if King David had asked the Israelites whom they thought would inherit the land, I wonder if they would have agreed with this psalm. I'm sure they would have liked the aspect that the wicked would be no more, and they probably would have not had any trouble with the words of delighting yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart, because that's, those, those are wonderful promises. But then some comments like, be still. 
and wait patiently on the Lord and fret not yourself. When we hear those types of exhortations, we realize patience is not the easiest thing in the world, especially in the midst of trials. And the context of David's own exhortation here in Psalm 37 is, is the wicked prospering at the expense of the righteous. At the very beginning, David says, don't be anxious or envious with regard to wrongdoers. So patience is hard enough in difficult times, but when the wicked have no moral compass, when relatively few boundaries and restrictions abide with them, when they do whatever it takes to get ahead at our cost, our natural response is to try to beat them at their game, right? Or get ahead of them, or just get rid of them. And so patience is definitely not the first virtue when it comes to those types of situations, but what helps us not to fret? Well, God reminds us through David that we have an eternal future to anticipate. And he says that the inheritance of the entire land, the entire earth, goes to the meek. And that Hebrew word there is humble, of lowly mind. And it fits well with verse 16 of our passage in Romans where Paul says, Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. John Calvin once said, Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after that contemplation to look at himself. And so a good question for you this morning is, have you contemplated God lately? Have you read again how the Bible describes the pride of our hearts and our own constant desire for self-fulfillment and self-indulgence and self-exaltation? Have you remembered and meditated upon what it took God to rescue you from bondage to the death grip of sin? How His own Son's death upon a cross made it possible for you to be alive through Him, through the power of the Holy Spirit? As one author has written, every time we look at the cross, it seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you, and it is your sin I am bearing, it is your curse I am suffering, it is your death that I am paying, your death for which I am dying. And so, as the author concludes, the cross never flatters us. And the amazing truth is that Christ did suffer and die for us. And because of that, God gets the glory. And that should make us exceedingly joyful, friends. It should make us exceedingly humble. Not only have we received the mercy and forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, but greater still, God receives glory. Because He's so good to us. Truthfully, thinking about that statement we read in Psalm 37 about the meek inheriting the the whole earth. We shouldn't just be happy because we have such an amazing inheritance. We should be even more happy that God is shown to be a great God in forgiving us and allowing us to inherit the land. And what we've seen developing in Romans 12, which began in verses 1 through 2 and telling us to die to ourselves, to sacrifice ourselves daily, to be conformed instead to the mindset of Christ is the description of how humility works itself out in the life of the believer. 
The humble believer goes and, and gives brotherly affection to other believers, works hard to be the one giving the greatest honor, shows hospitality to the saints. And then Paul continues that theme in these next verses. And he adds, live in harmony with one another. And a little further, if, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. So harmony, peace, these are high aims for the humble believer. And part of achieving this is being willing to give up the need to be right. The need to get even. And not only with fellow believers, but even with those outside the church. How many of you right now would attribute some of your ongoing angst or bitterness, frustration, whatever it might be, with a deep-seated sense of having been wronged? I'm not saying that we never go to others who have offended us, but I do want to suggest that the reason that we go to others is not so much that we need vindication. So friends, please hear this. The reason why we address offenses with others is not so much because we need vindication, but because doing so is necessary for that person's greater good or reputation, or the good and reputation of others, or the good and reputation of God. And you can see how Romans 12 is saying that our own vindication, our own need to be right is not as important. And perhaps you can see how in the context of Psalm 37, the reminder is that this is possible because you have such a great inheritance. God is not only your vindicator now, but he is your rewarder in the eternal future. So how do you become that kind of person? How do you, how do you become humble? Well, we already know that it requires daily dying to ourselves. That's what we learned at the start of this chapter and other portions of Scripture. So let me add some things that we get and pull out from the rest of Scripture and, and tie it in with Romans 12. And we'll treat it as if we're taking steps towards, and I would say the, the downward the right path towards humility. First, the road to humility involves trusting God. Now, I might have started with fearing the Lord because we know Proverbs says fearing the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, but I've already implied that earlier when I talked about contemplating who God is and comparing it to ourselves. God is perfectly holy and we are not and so I'm going to go ahead and say that the first step with that already as an understanding is to trust the Lord. And when you read verses 19 to 21, do you believe them here in Romans 12? Do you believe when, when Paul writes, beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. But, but notice that he doesn't just say, vengeance is mine. He says, I will repay. Justice will be done. But you have to believe that. True humility, true meekness is rooted in a deep confidence that God is for you. Therefore, as Paul asked earlier in chapter 8, who can be against us if the Lord is for 
is with us. So can you admit that you are insufficient to cope with the complexities and pressures and the obstacles of your life? That you have to trust that God is able and willing to sustain you, to guide you, to protect you, and even to avenge the wrong that occurs in your life. It's only when you can do that that it's possible to do what verse 20 says, which is, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Or if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And let me just quickly add this. The reason you can do this is not because verse 20 says that by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Okay? I think it would be easy for us to to show our enemy kindness because we knew that it's an indirect increase of judgment upon them. Verse 20 is is a verse in which Paul describes a reality. That is, God's judgment will be, God will repay. There will be judgment against your enemy who really is your enemy because he's an enemy against God. And he continues to commit evil against you even in the face of your kindness. And that does increase God's judgment. But that is God's issue to worry about. You instead are exhorted to respond to evil with good. And the only way you can do that is if you really, really trust that God is with you. And that He cares about your situation. That justice, ultimately God's justice, will be accomplished. Next, the road to humility involves, as we saw in Psalm 37, being still. And that is so hard, isn't it? Especially when we live in such a distracted and busy culture. I'd venture to bet that there are some of you who can't imagine what that is like. To be still for an extended time. You look at your calendar and you know that every single day it says on Google Calendar 2 plus Two plus, two plus, right? Because you can't even display everything on your screen that you have uh, filling up your calendar days. What does being still mean in the context of these two passages? It means to wait on God. It means to counter that impulse that rises automatically in you when someone says or does something offensive. If you trust that God is with you, and for you, and will vindicate you, can you also trust him in how and when he will do that? Because it's only in that also that you're able to not react instantly to the offenses against you, and they go, God's going to do it. He's going to take care of it, right? You've got to live in the understanding of what this verse means, to be still. And I'm not telling you to be lazy or complacent about the Christian life. Believers should always work hard to be obedient to the Word. But the important point is that you know that God is sovereign, that He is powerful, that He knows what is taking place. He's working all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to the purpose that He has called them. And so, He has His affairs, He has your affairs under control. It's only when you live in the light of that reality that in the midst of difficulty, 
You don't need to fear. You don't need to be anxious. You can show affection even to someone who wrongs you in the moment. And friends, I know that what I've just said is hard. I know over the past 50 years I've sinned against others and they have sinned against me several times. And in a few of those times, despite feeling that I had done everything that I could to remedy the situation that didn't resolve. And I can tell you in full transparency that I didn't always follow Romans 12. There have been moments when I didn't want to bless the one I felt was persecuting me. Or to overcome evil with good. I just wanted, not even necessarily that I wanted to do evil back, I just wanted to avoid that person. And the result, sadly the result of that, even in avoidance, is anxiety and bitterness, which is not of God. Perhaps you have a relationship like that. And think of someone who has wronged you and rather than being able to be still and trust in the Lord, it has eaten at you. You avoid that person like the plague. You are bitter every time you think about what happened with that individual. And then similar situations just cause you anxiety. Isn't that funny how it does that in our lives? When we come across similar situations because we've not allowed our heart to be settled about those times, we start getting to something that seems similar. We get ourselves agitated and because it just keeps coming back and reminding us in that cycle about what we have not yet let go. Well, God's calling you today in this, these two passages to be still. Listen to Paul's words in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious. And he doesn't just leave it there. That would, there'd be some ambiguity there if he just left it there. Don't be anxious. Because then you'd say, yeah, don't be anxious in the, in the little things. Or some of you would think in the big things. But Paul says about anything. Don't be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is something inseparably connected between these two items. Between being still trusting in God and not being anxious in anything and peace. And in between those two things, what makes them possible to exist together is that part right there, prayer and thanksgiving. Let God be in control. Tell God your problems, your requests. Be thankful for what we read this morning. God is not only your vindicator, but he has an inheritance that he's given you. Let your humility, do you know what the verse says right before that passage? It says, let your humility be known to everyone because the Lord is at hand. 
Well, third step along the path to humility brought out from our passages is that we refrain from anger. And I've already mentioned bitterness a few times, but I want to extend that to not only things that happen to you in the present, but things that have already happened to you in the past, and even that will happen to you in the future. Can you let go of those things that are keeping you stuck? Is it a parent, a relationship, spouse relationship, child relationship? Is it an employer? Is it a friend? Whatever it may be, can you let go of those things that are keeping you stuck? Will you trust God? Will you wait patiently and quietly to see how His power and His goodness will work things out? And when it seems like that person is not responding, are you willing to continue to fight for peace because you're thankful for what God has done in your life? That's what it means to be humble. While the rest of society fights for prominence, while it's churning and wrestling and fretting and anxiety, the humble Christian can live in peace. We read in Numbers that Moses was described as the meekest of men. We read, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the woman whom he had married, for he had married a woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out here, you three. You ever say that to your little children? Come out here, you three. Well, that's, that's kind of how the Lord was having to deal with them in this moment. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. He beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak out against my servant Moses? Now, remember what we read at the beginning of that passage. Moses was described as being more humble than anyone else around him. And think about what we've learned this morning. Humility means committing your cause to the Lord, not needing to defend yourself. And just where we would expect the text to tell us that Moses tried to defend himself, however you might have thought it would go. Look, guys, I didn't want to do this in the first place. I told God, pick someone else. And he said, me, why are you picking on me? Or, do you know who you're talking to? Or... Do you want this job? Any number of ways that he could have responded, right? Or just downright being frustrated and bitter that Miriam and Aaron are complaining. But what happens? Moses waits patiently. He doesn't say a word for the Lord's vindication. I would imagine he went back to the Lord and prayed. I would imagine that based upon the other passage that we read. Perhaps in that moment, 
And Moses certainly has his weak moments. But maybe in that moment he was thankful. Maybe he was even praying for his brother and his sister. Understanding that it was difficult for them. How stressful this whole time had been. And in the showdown with the Pharaoh and the, the crossing of the Red Sea and all of, all of the things that were difficult. I don't know what it was or, or what happened, but I do know in James 1 we read, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Self-defensive people tend to be people who complete other sentences, especially in the midst of arguments. They tend to be the quick people to, to interrupt, right? When the person is talking and and they interrupt their spouse or they interrupt their friend or their, their sibling. And you know, There's not a need or, or a sense of a need for communication and resolution and reconciliation. It's just, no. But let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, Because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Self-defensiveness does not produce the righteousness of God. Put away filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness, there we go again, yet again, the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So James has in mind two kinds of people here. He pictures on the one hand a person who does not like to listen to what other people have to say, especially if they speak with authority or offense, the, uh, that person is quick to speak, easily becomes angry, and if the words of others cross his opinion, call his behavior, character, motives into question, he is not receptive to the word of God. He filters it through his own desires and receives it selectively, if at all. On the other hand, James pictures another type of person. This person is slow to speak, quick to listen, and so the question for you is, which, which person describes you? The humble person, according to James, recognizes the limitations of his knowledge, the fallibility of his thinking. He's eager to listen. Why would we listen? Why do we listen? We listen to hear We listen to learn. We listen to communicate. And if we hear something new or contrary to our own view, our first reaction is not anger, but we are instead, James says, slow to anger. We listen and we consider. And we process. We think about what the Lord would have as a response. That's why That type of attitude produces the righteousness of God rather than that quickness to speak. And it leads us to a fourth step. Becoming humble is becoming teachable. The humble man or woman receives the word with a teachable spirit. And by that I do not mean to imply that we are gullible or 
ignorant, nor do I mean to imply that Christians never get angry about what people teach or do. We talked about that last year. James says that we should be slow to anger. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am meek and lowly in heart. If there was ever a, a meek person, it was Jesus who did not resist the evil intent of his own countrymen to put him to death, but meekly went to the cross. But we also learn in Mark 3 that Jesus became angry and grieved at the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. And as I said in much greater detail when we talked about anger over several sermons, Jesus' first and foremost desire was to glorify and serve the Father. If you have a similar attitude, then the single greatest motivation of your life will be to serve God and put his interests first. Was Jesus serving the Father when he allowed Israel to crucify him? Yes. Jesus knew the cross was the Father's will. Was Jesus serving the Father when he was consumed with zeal over the corruption of the temple? Yes, again. What about us? Will there be times when, like Moses or Jesus, that we should be silent in the face of false accusation? Will there be other times when God's name is profane and we must speak up, lest our silence be construed as supportive? Yes and yes. Both, are, both can exist. And it's not my goal today to tell you how to discern the difference. Instead, I direct you to those sermons. But I do like the advice, just a summary advice here in James 3.13. James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I think that's a, that's a neat phrase, in the meekness of wisdom. If you want to truly be wise and know the appropriate application of God's word to every situation, when to respond to sin, when to wait on the Lord in the face of injustice, then you must be truly humble. Why? Because verse 17 adds, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and open to reason. Sounds familiar, right? Those are the marks of humility that we've been covering this morning. And it's remarkable to me how the marks of biblical wisdom and biblical humility are the same. And what that tells me, friends, is that wisdom is never simply a matter of intelligence. And please hear this because it's one of the more important things I'm telling you today. Wisdom is not just standing at an arm's length from Scripture and saying, hmm, you know, John 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 2 Chronicles 12, this is how these facts and principles apply from Scripture to the specific situation or to that situation. Instead, wisdom is first an attitude of the heart. The wise are first people who are peaceable, gentle, and teachable. Humble people. So if you are struggling with how to respond to a situation, are you attacking your problem simply with the intellect? Are you going online and, and researching all the things that apply to this Scenario and making up logical arguments and writing out essay responses? 
Or have you humbled yourself before the Lord, recognized who you are, recognized who God is, confessed your need for God to be your avenger, determined to wait on His timing and provision? Because it's only when you've gotten your heart in the right place that you're actually ready for the Holy Spirit to work through your intellect to make wise decisions. So let's step back and see if we can see this portrait whole from what we've covered today. Humility begins when we put our trust in God. And then because we trust Him, we commit our way to Him. We give Him our anxieties, our frustrations, our plans, our relationships, our jobs, our health. We let go of the bitterness of the past. We let go of the simmering anxieties of injustice, and then we wait patiently for the Lord. We trust His timing, His power, His grace to work out things in the best way for His glory, for our good. And the result of trusting God and committing ourselves to Him patiently is that we don't give way to quick and fretful anger, But instead, like Moses, we hand our cause over to God. We let him vindicate us if he chooses. And then as James says, in this quiet confidence, we're slow to speak, we are quick to listen, we become reasonable, teachable, open to correction. And when we must say a critical word to someone else caught in sin or error, we do so only from the deep conviction, one of our own fallibility, and susceptibility to sin, but also for the right reasons, not for our vindication, but for their good and for God's glory. And friends, when we live like this, when we live out what we've been learning in Romans chapter 12, and again, I circle back to saying, you know, the more we've read this chapter, the more we realize what it means to say that we are giving ourselves as a daily sacrifice to the Lord as our spiritual act of worship because none of this is easy. But when people in humility and in a great love for God live like this, they live in harmony with one another. They live in unity in the body of Christ. They bring God glory. And the world does not live that way. And so humble men and women, they shine forth God's character like lighthouses. And all along, I think, if if we've really been paying attention, that the secondary and really the less important result is that we inherit the earth. But it's a wonderful result. It's a wonderful blessing. And yet what's What's even above and overarching all of this is how God is magnificently glorified in how, what he's accomplished. This group of anxious, easily angered, bitter, frustrated, distracted, you, you name it, you fill in all the blanks of people, prideful, self-indulgent, self-centered people that he could make us like what we've been learning about today. That is amazing. But, you know, let me, because I think it is 
intended to be a motivation for you when the time gets difficult to remember these things, let me just say, from the very beginning, what Psalm 37 is telling you, that when you become a believer, you enter God's kingdom and receive title back to the original inheritance that was given to Adam and Eve. God originally gave Adam and Eve the earth. He told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill it. Take dominion of it. You know, bring order to it for my glory. And then that was lost and it was frustrated. And Revelation 26 says that ultimately all believers will be kings and priests of God and of Christ and they shall reign with him over a new heaven, a new earth. And what that does is not only motivates you because it's just such a wonderful thing ahead of us, but do any of you get a sense of heightened responsibility too? I hope so. It, it, it should give you this, this, this sense of significance. It helps give strength in the difficult task of remaining Humble even in the face of persecution. As Paul says in Romans 12, God will repay. As Davis writes in Psalm 37, verse 3, the wicked will fade like grass, wither in the green herb. But there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 that helps make it fit together perhaps even better. In so many of his letters, just as with the Romans, Paul tries to help believers overcome pride and deal with things that we've been talking about today. You know the Corinthians were boasting in different teachers and their worldly wisdom and they were a disunited church. And so Paul writes, starting in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can actually become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly, foolishness. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. Don't boast in men. Don't boast in accomplishments. Don't boast in what you possess, because what? All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ and Christ is God's. And the logic here is, don't, don't buy into the world's lie. Everything already belongs to you. So when it says the meek shall inherit the earth, remember that, think about that. Let it fill you with the blessing of what God has in store for you, but also of the reminder of that commission that he gave to Adam and Eve. Bring order, bring function, bring purpose to things. Be my steward. Represent me well. Do I need to worry that the wicked prosper for a short time here on earth when I realize I will one day reign with Christ in eternity? And that because I am Christ and Christ is God's, that nothing, as Paul told us early in chapter 8, can separate us from the love of God and that future promise? So I just commend all these things to you, friends. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, if you trust him and commit your way to him, if you wait patiently for him, God's already begun to help you. 
The primary way that he will help you is to assure your heart you are a fellow heir of Christ Jesus. And that the world, everything is yours. And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, will he not freely give you all things? Right? All things. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. You start putting together all those passages and you realize, friends, when we think about the meek inheriting the land, I'm not just talking about real estate. We're talking about a kingdom. We're talking about the, the love of God spread abroad abundantly. We are talking about all things in Christ. And so because of that, friends, let God avenge you. Be still. Give up those anxieties. Be teachable. And you will know the peace of God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word for us today in Romans 12, Psalm 37. I thank you that you have instructed us, you've reminded us to be still, to be humble before you, to rest in you. You've reminded us about wisdom and its connection to humility. You've helped us to realize how gracious you've been in giving us a joint inheritance with Jesus. If there are anyone, if there is anyone anxious, struggling with bitterness, having a hard time with self-control when it comes to anger, Lord, someone who is harsh, grumbling, complaining, I've probably by now described all of us. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember these words today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.